Before we pray, I'd like to again remind us of Dennis Ann's scheduled surgery tomorrow. I would like to pray for her. So if uh, you're near her, place your hands on her as we pray. We're going to ask God's blessing on the... Mark, too? Friday, Friday. Thank you, Ken. Okay, let's uh, ask God's blessing on these two um, cases and uh, those that are involved. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for your, your um, greatness, your goodness to us. Thank you for bringing us together today for this occasion, a beautiful Lord's Day, a day set aside of rest and worship. And we pray that this would be our experience. Bless Lester as he preaches your word. May you anoint him with your power of your spirit. Also for the scheduled surgeries this week, Dennis Ann and Mark, thank you for the fact that you are the great physician. We want to commit these, especially these individuals, into your hand this week. Guide the surgeons, doctors, the team that will be caring for them and doing these procedures. We just pray that you would guide their hands and that uh, you would grant healing as a result of this on each of their respective bodies. We thank you. And praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Greetings this morning to each one of you. Before I get into the sermon, I'd like to just take the opportunity to thank you as a church for many gifts that you have shared with me, with our family over the past year and especially the Christmas season, we feel very blessed to be a part of a caring church. And you have shown us how much you care by the, by the gifts you've shared with us, including this nice Yeti cup that I'm gonna use this morning just so you're not distracted by it. It's not part of my sermon, but I have some lemon tea in there for my throat, so. Um, yeah, just, I can tell by the way that you share with us that um, you put some thought into the gifts you share, and we can tell that you care, and we appreciate that very much. This morning, I'd like to talk to you about a, um, a group of people that we're probably fairly familiar with, and in, in, if you're familiar with the scriptures, and that is the Pharisees. I'd like for you to tell me what, what do you think of, what's the first word that comes to your mind when you think of the Pharisees? A couple of you, I'd like to, to just hear from you. What's one word that comes to your mind? Lofty. Okay, what's that name? Saul, okay. Who was later called Paul. All right, lofty. Anything else? Legalistic. Zealous. Okay, you got a hint there from my title. Zeal without knowledge. Clever. Is that what you said? A stubborn. Okay, yes. Um, I think of hypocrite because that's a word that Jesus used to describe them. And I think for the most part, we look at them in a negative way. We think about the, the words of judgment that Jesus had for them and, and the strife between them and Jesus and his disciples. 
So it seems like what we know about the Pharisees is maybe mostly negative. Jesus didn't speak well of them and of their belief system. I'd like to look a little bit more about who they were and, and what, um, where did they go wrong? Why was it that, that you know, they were so religious, they knew the law, they studied it, and yet um, were judged harshly by Jesus? Where did they go wrong? And most importantly, maybe how do we avoid the same pitfalls? I think as we, as we look at the, the Pharisees, and, and I'd like to kind of bring this out, how they weren't just this, these terrible and um, prideful and, and harsh, and, and they weren't just, they, they were normal people, and in some ways a lot like we are. Some of the same, um, some, some, actually some pretty strong similarities there. You know, we, many of us are, are multi-generational Christians, if we're allowed to use that word. Um, you know, our parents, our grandparents um, taught us about Christ, so we're religious, if you will. And, um, and we're, as Anabaptists, we're taught pretty strongly that obedience to the word of God is very important. And in that way, we're, we'll see that we're somewhat similar to the Pharisees as well. Um, but let's look a little more at who they were and some, some, try and learn some more things about them. Um, when, when did they start? When was the beginning of, of this group? Um, what were their origins? We often think of them primarily as a group that was known to be zealous for keeping the law. So that's where, where my title comes from, and that, that zeal without knowledge is, is how Paul described them. Paul, Saul, who was later called Paul, who himself was a Pharisee, after his conversion, um, talked about his people and said that they do have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They, their origins probably, though we don't, from what I could find, don't know a lot about them, but it's possible that it went back to the time of the Babylonian captivity when the Jewish people were taken out of their country and spent uh, 70 years in a foreign land, removed from their temple worship and all their traditions. And during that time, it's possible that, that you know, there was this strong pull among those people to let, let's keep our identity as a people. Let's keep following the law. Let's not forget Daniel was, was one man we know well who, who um, was there and lived during that time, the Babylonian captivity. But it's possible that their origins went way back to there. Now, now they weren't, they actually weren't called, they didn't call themselves Pharisees. They were called that by other people at a later time as they kind of more and more became this distinct group of people. Others named them Pharisees, which means um, um, separated ones is what the word Pharisee actually meant. And they were called that by those outside of their own circles. They were a combination of a religious sect, a political group, a social movement, and a school of thought. I think all four of those kind of describe who they were, but none of them, none of those individual things exactly describe who they are. They likely developed more and more into a pronounced sect after their return from Babylon, after they came back to their land, after the temple was rebuilt and, and some of those traditions and, and the laws that they were originally instructed to follow were, were brought into their life and practice again. It's probably when they became more of a pronounced sect of people. 
They were, in the time of Jesus, were known as the religious conservatives. They often opposed the Sadducees. Those two groups intermingled, but they had some very different beliefs. And in, in, for the most part, um, did not like each other, did not get, a well, get along well with each other for the most part, though they cooperated in, in crucifying Jesus. They were opposed to each other because the Sadducees were seen more as the liberals. They were the, the more wealthy, the more elite, and their view of the law was that they, they only followed what, they, what was known as the written law, whereas the Pharisees strictly followed both the written and the oral law. So there was a lot of things that, that weren't exactly written down, just passed down over the generations that the Pharisees saw as very, very important in, uh, in obedience to God, and the Sadducees did not. The Sadducees also um, widely accepted the Greek life and culture, and the Pharisees sought to preserve Judaism. So they were seen more as the religious conservatives. The, the Pharisees were a powerful group because, they had, because of, they had influence among the elites. We see examples of that in Scripture in different times when uh, they, they, they were influential in, in the, the rulers of their, their time there. The, the, um, it would have been the Romans, I guess, that, that were ruling over them. And, but they, they were influential. They had some say in, in what the government did. And because of that, we see them as a powerful group of people. They were probably more so common people than what the Sadducees were. We often think of the Pharisees as, as wealthy and the elite, and maybe to some extent they were, but from what I could learn, they were common people that, that shared this, this um, school of thought and, and this, this zeal they had to preserve the law, preserve Judaism, and use their influence to try and force that upon people. <clears throat> we also will see how they often used intimidation as a way to get people on their side. They're often mentioned alongside with the scribes. You know, Jesus in, in Matthew 23 pronounced those woes on the scribes and Pharisees. As far as I can understand, the scribes were part of the Pharisees. It was more like scribes was a word for, for like their secretary or a, a scribe was a person who wrote, down, wrote things down and recorded things. So they had scribes because they had such a long list of, of laws, both the written and the oral law. Um, they used the scribes to help them to keep track of everything, maybe you could say. So in summary, they believed that, that by promoting and enforcing this way of life, strict obedience to what they interpreted as the law, they were helping Israel to hold up their end of the covenant with God. I'd like for you to turn with me to Deuteronomy. So I want to now look at some of the things that Moses said to the children of Israel. And really, what the Pharisees believed and practiced goes way back to the time of Moses and the giving of the law. So in a sense, this is really where their um, origin was. Though we view them often in a negative light, I'd like for you to take to try and think about that in a little different way as, as we look at what Moses said here in Deuteronomy and we look at what the Pharisees were trying to do. Um, I find myself almost siding with them a little bit and saying, wasn't Jesus a little hard on them? Weren't they just trying to do what Moses told them to do? 
Um, in Deuteronomy, I'll just read chapter 1, verse 3, and then I want to read some verses out of chapter 4 and just try and pick out a few verses here to, to portray to you what it was that Moses was instructing the people to do. In Deuteronomy 1, 3, Now it came to pass in the 40th year and the 11th month on the first day of the month that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them. So here they were, the 40th year of wandering in the wilderness. They were getting close to the time for them to go over and conquer um, this land that God had promised to give to them. That was very, very deeply ingrained in their lives that they were given a promised land. They were to possess that land. So Moses here, as we know, was not allowed to enter that promised land with them, but he was giving them some final instructions before they crossed over. And it says he told them all that the Lord had given him as commandments for them. And then skipping back to chapter 4, I'll read verses 1 through 14. And basically what we see here is Moses is begging these people to be zealous for the law. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord, your, Lord God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourselves and diligently keep yourselves, lest you forget the things your eye has seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb. When the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, and they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and they may teach their children. Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire in the midst of heaven, with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on the two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at this time to teach you statutes and judgments that you may observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. So Moses goes on then, and you can read just chapter after chapter here of him recounting all those laws and all the instructions that God had given them, reminding them that they were to be faithful to this. And if they would, they would become a great nation. Uh, this was, was, was their identity. This was who they were. They were supposed to um, possess this land and live there according to the laws of God. And all the other nations around them would just say, wow, what, what great people. Look what God is doing in those people. That was their identity. 
he also reminded them of what happened with Baal of Peor. And if we go back to Numbers, we could, we could uh, read that story. That was where the children of Israel started. Uh, they went into the Moabites. They took wives from them, and they started worshiping their idols, one of them being this Baal Peor. And because of that idolatry, because of what they did, God destroyed 24,000 of them with a plague. And in fact, God told Moses that he's to tell the people to go out and kill their own brothers who were worshiping idols, and they did that. He reminds them, your eyes have seen what the Lord did there at Bill Peor. He destroyed from among you those who followed this idol. And you are to hold fast to the Lord your God. So as we think about all this, and look at what the Pharisees were trying to do. They wanted to preserve that. They wanted... They were living in the time of Jesus under the rule of the Romans. They knew that that was not God's intention. Uh, this was supposed to be their land and only their land. And I think they largely viewed um, the, the failure to follow the law as the reason that they as a people were suffering under Roman rule and, and were losing their identity because they were not following the law. Um, also, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, it's some more of the instructions that Moses gave them. And I'll read those couple verses. Now, this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded you to teach, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as, <clears throat> as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moses emphasizes the importance of them, of placing that law in front of them, of being familiar with it, of teaching it to their children and their grandchildren, and of obeying it. And that is how they would become a great nation. That is how they would possess this great land. So as we think of the Pharisees in that light, like I said, I feel a little bit sorry for them that they got so strictly judged by Jesus. Was Jesus being too harsh? Obviously, we're not going to try and contradict what Jesus was saying. Instead, I want to take you to look at what Jesus' evaluation was of the Pharisees and then ask the question, where did the Pharisees go wrong? What was it? Where did they fail? And what can we learn that we can avoid the same pitfalls? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to skip through a few passages here in Matthew to get a little bit of an idea of what Jesus had to say about them here in the, in the New Testament, the time of Christ. So they have been a, a strict... Um, sect of people, a very influential group of people for quite a few years now. And 
Jesus comes on the scene, and actually here in Matthew chapter 3, it's, it's just before Jesus came on the scene. This is John the Baptist. The first mention of the Pharisees here in the book of Matthew was from John the Baptist as he was baptizing in the river Jordan. And it says here that he called them a brood of vipers. As, as the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to him for baptism, he said in verse 7, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And, and he goes on to, to emphasize to them that they need, they need, what he really was saying was you, you really need to repent and, and live repentant lives, show fruit of that repentance. It seems like the Pharisees were fairly willing to come out there to John, and, and as his, his preaching was the need for repentance, I think the Pharisees realized that disobedience to God, disobedience to the law, was the consequence of that was, was where they were at as a nation. They were, they were losing their grip on their identity, and the Romans were taking over. As a result of their sins, so I think they, they fairly easily saw their need of repentance, maybe not so easily to actually live a repentant life. But the act of coming out and repenting seemed uh, like they were willing to do that. John the Baptist says, your lives need to be lives of repentance. And he also reminds them that they cannot depend upon their fathers, upon their, their ancestors, uh, their, their identity as a people. You say you have Abraham as your father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. They needed more than just that identity in, in who they were as descendants of Abraham. In Matthew 5, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And in there he talks of a righteousness greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. The common people here saw the Pharisees as very righteous people, I believe. Uh, very strict and, and followed the law. But Jesus indicates that there is a higher level of righteousness that they are to attain to than the righteousness of the Pharisees. And in Matthew chapter 9, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they are concerned with him, seeing him eating with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus sat down to eat with sinners and, and the tax collectors uh, were grouped with sinners because to the Pharisees, there again, they, they, they resented the Roman rule over them. The tax collectors were working on behalf of Rome. And to them, probably, they said, you know, people just aren't following the law like they should. And that's why we are under this Roman oppression. So the tax collectors had a reputation of stealing and being dishonest as well. So they, they classed them right there with the rest of sinners. And here Jesus is eating with them, and they confront him about it. Jesus said to them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In Matthew 15, Jesus con is confronted again by the Pharisees about his disciples' failure to properly wash their hands. Jesus calls them hypocrites and reminds them how they themselves undermine God's commandments by their insistence on the keeping of tradition. And it's interesting if you look there, 
the Pharisees actually uh, admitted that what they were teaching was tradition. They didn't claim, at that point, it didn't seem like they claimed that that was directly from God, though, though I'm not sure that their understanding by them at that time, the tradition of the fathers was almost equal to the word of God. So they come to Jesus and they say, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? And Jesus just points out to them that by their own traditions, they were undermining the word of God. So he makes that distinction between their traditions and what God says. He doesn't place them on the same level like the Pharisees probably were doing. And then probably the most familiar passage of Jesus confronting the Pharisees is in Matthew chapter 23. Here is where he gives warnings and woes, a woe being an exclamation exclamation of impending evil, uh, pronouncing grief or distress. And I think there's eight times in here that he pronounces a woe on the scribes and Pharisees. I don't think I'm going to take the time to read this passage. I may refer to some of it here a little later. But Jesus, here's where he really brings um, judgment upon them. And this was just before, I believe, getting close to the time of his crucifixion. And in, in the end of, after pronouncing all those woes upon them, he says in the last part of that chapter, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who, who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that was basically the end of Jesus confronting them. He, he, it's almost like he just poured out to them one last time his, his disgust with where they were as people. And gave them one last warning of what was coming if they did not change. Let's turn then to looking at, well, where did the Pharisees go wrong? Why, if they were so zealous about following the law as Moses had instructed them, why were they now at this time um, so condemned by Christ? Why did he, he speak so strongly to them? While they had a zeal to obey the law, I want to point out how they missed a few key parts. One being in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Turn with me back there. I think this is a a pretty important uh, passage of scripture for us to understand. This was part of those instructions that Moses was giving to them just before they crossed over to possess the land that God had promised to them. This seems to be a part that most of them missed. He says in chapter 18, 15 to 19, the Lord your God will raise for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. 
So the children of Israel were afraid of when they heard the voice of God on that mountain and the mountain shook and there was fire and they realized God was right there and they were afraid of him. They, their request was that that um, that Moses would speak to them for God. They were afraid that they would die and rightly so if they as sinful people stood face to face with God. The Lord said what you have spoken is good and he gave them Moses but he here says that there is coming another prophet like Moses. And I, I'm not sure exactly, but I, I, it seems like the Pharisees at the time of Jesus um, were still looking back at Moses as the greatest prophet that ever lived. I'm not sure if they were expecting another one to come. Or if they were even looking for another prophet like Moses. They were basing their righteousness on what Moses had taught them and them following his instructions. Another part they missed seems to be what Jesus called the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And I just read that earlier there in Deuteronomy. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, that it was a heart issue. And the second commandment that Jesus said is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. In Leviticus 19.18, it says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. There's probably a lot of accounts we could look at in the New Testament, but one that, that I had to think of where, where it didn't appear the Pharisees were following this law is when they brought that woman who was caught in adultery. They brought her before Jesus told him what the law says. And Jesus, Jesus um, said so much that whoever among you is without sin can throw the first stone. They all realized that they were sinners. But in that we see how that, that's just one example of how they disdained the sinners, those who were sinners. They hated them. And rather than, like it says here in Leviticus, to not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but love your neighbor. They, they put themselves in a class higher than the common people. And they viewed themselves as more righteous because of their zeal for keeping the law. And they missed the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Another part they seemed to miss was mercy. You see that where Jesus told them, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. They were not merciful people. They were not known as merciful people, but insistent that the law is kept. Yes, they were zealous about separating themselves from sin, but they, they didn't like that Jesus was sitting down and eating with sinners. They didn't see the difference in, in separating from sin. And, and in Jesus' example was that, that he would associate with them and show them mercy and draw them away from their sin. The Pharisees separated themselves. That was why they were called Pharisees. They were viewed as a separate people. They separated themselves from sinners. Another example would be the, the two men praying. I think it says the one was a Pharisee, and he was proud as he stood in the corner praying where, where everybody could see him on the street corner and looked down on the man. Um, I don't remember the details of, of that account right now, but obviously the Pharisee had lifted him up, himself up and was proud and separated himself from others who were sinners. 
They forgot mercy. They forgot the greatest commandment and the second that was like unto it. And they missed the part about the coming prophet Moses. So they missed a few key, a few key parts. Another area where I see that they went wrong is they had a zeal for doing, but that kept them from knowing. They had this zeal to, to do, do everything they could, every little detail of the law that they could possibly find to do, and doing it faithfully. But in that doing, that zeal for doing, it kept them from knowing. This became the focus of their lives, and it drew them to focus on appearance, on the outside instead of the heart. Pride and jealousy ruled their hearts, and this made it impossible for them to identify with Jesus. Jesus had a reputation of being a humble man. In fact, he required his followers to humble themselves. The pride and jealousy that had become such a big part of their lives by their zeal for doing right made it impossible for them to identify with Jesus. Zeal can be blinding. They were a people of zeal, but zeal can be blinding. When you're so focused on doing something and, and you miss the rest, they added to the law when Moses clearly told them not to. I read that in Deuteronomy there as well, where Moses said, you, you cannot add to this law. This is from God. This is the words from God. But they did add to the law. Jesus confronted them about that. They required others to follow traditions that were held um, at the same level as the words of God. Knowing Christ is most important, and this is where they failed. I'd like for you to think about how we can avoid the same pitfalls as the Pharisees. Today we have been given the spirit that it says will guide us into all truth. And as we, if we search the scriptures, if we want to know what is there, if we want to know what is in the scriptures and we ask the spirit to guide us, we can avoid the pitfalls that the Pharisees fell into. Their zeal for doing kept them from knowing. I'd like to look at some examples of, there's three people here in, in the Bible that I think are good examples of people who had a zeal for the law and the knowledge of God. And, and one of them was a Pharisee. So not all the Pharisees were um, like we often think of them. Some of them did become believers. The first one I look, want to look at is, is David. This, here we have an ancestor of the Pharisees in the time of Jesus, and they looked back on David and admired him. But turn with me to Psalm 119. This is some poetic words of David that so well portray his zeal for the law as well as his desire to know God. <clears throat> His zeal for the law did not blind him from knowing God. I'll read Psalm 119, verses 9 through 20, and just listen to the poetic words that he uses here. 
and how beautiful it is to see a man who was so passionate, so zealous about following God and yet um, wanted to know him. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wonder from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. And I'll stop there. There we see a glimpse of, of what, of who David was. And especially I like to notice verse 18 there where he says, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. I think if the Pharisees in the time of Christ here had, would have done that, they would have come to recognize Jesus as who he was, the Messiah. If they would have prayed, open my eyes that I may see, but their zeal for doing kept them from asking that of God to open their eyes. The second one I want to look at is Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. In John chapter 3, um, I'll just give you a little bit of that story without reading it, but we, we know that Nicodemus was the man who came to Jesus one night, came to him secretly as one of the Pharisees, and wanted to have a conversation with him. And I think Jesus gave him a lot to think about there. It doesn't really tell us what his response was as he went from there, whether, whether he at that point decided to uh, follow Christ, whether he fully believed in Christ as the Messiah then or not, we're, we're not exactly sure. But certainly Jesus gave him a lot to think about. He comes to Jesus and says, I, I know you're a great teacher. Um, I know you come from God. No one can do the miracles that you're doing unless they're from God. And Jesus goes on to lecture him for a while there, turning his, attempting to turn his, his, um, vision from just the earthly and the physical to the spiritual. The, the part I'd like to look at about Nicodemus is then on back in John chapter 7. Here it tells us some interesting things about him in verses 50 through 52. So the setting here is that the Pharisees had sent out some officers to arrest Jesus. This is the tension was really building here. They were ready to get rid of Jesus. They had pretty much made up their minds, I think, at this point. They were going to get rid of him in some way or another. And they sent out some officers to arrest him. These officers came back to them without Jesus. And they said, why have you not brought him? The officers answered in verse 46, no man ever spoke like this man. Then listen to what the Pharisees say. They answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. We see there the Pharisees using that tactic of intimidating people in order to get them to follow their law. They, they say to these officers, are you deceived too, like the common people out there? Are you so ignorant as they are? 
The crowd that does not know the law and is accursed, they say. Those people out there don't know the law like we do. They're sinners. They're damned. Are you like them? Are you identifying with them? And Nicodemus then speaks up. Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing, is what Nicodemus said. So he tried to, to prevent them from, from making um, an unjust judgment here, to wrongly judge who Jesus was. So I think that by this time, Nicodemus recognized that I don't think he was on board with the rest of the Pharisees as to who Jesus was. He tries to stop them. So does our law judge someone before it hears him? He pointed out to them the law that they were disobeying. The Pharisees here were not regarding that part of their law, that a man is not judged until they hear him, until they understand what he is doing. Now listen to what they answered to Nicodemus. They said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And the Pharisees looked down on the Galileans because they were viewed as uneducated and of questionable ancestry. If you look on the map in the time of Jesus, Galilee was, was the area to the north of, of their country, around the Sea of Galilee. And then there was Samaria, and then there was Judea. And it seems like the, the good people in the Pharisees' eyes came from Judea. The, the rest, the Samaritans, as, as well as the Galileans, they weren't quite sure that they were full-blooded Jews. They weren't quite sure if they were really committed to keeping the law. And they looked down on them. So they say here to Nicodemus, are you also from Galilee? I think they knew that Nicodemus wasn't from Galilee. I think they knew who he was, but they were saying, are you stupid like the Galileans are? So they're using intimidation. But Nicodemus pointed out to them where they weren't following the law. I believe Nicodemus saw something different in Jesus because he stopped, he looked, he came, he asked questions. He wanted to know Jesus. The other example I want to look at is the disciple Philip in John chapter 1. <clears throat> One of Jesus' disciples was named Philip, and we don't know very much about him. But there's something interesting here. We see him as an example of someone who had a zeal for the law and wanted to know God, wanted to know him. So Jesus called Philip to be one of his disciples. In verse 43 of John chapter 1, he said, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and, Philip, Andrew, Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Philip realized, he believed, he was paying attention to the words of Moses where he said, there's a prophet coming like me. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. That was a part of the law that Philip didn't miss as many of the Pharisees did. He realized that Jesus here perhaps was that man, and he wanted to find out. He said to Nathaniel, come with me. 
Nathanael doubted, too, that Jesus was because he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was a city in Galilee. That was not where the great prophets were supposed to come from. Philip says to him, come and see. I think those words are, that one little phrase is a, is what the Pharisees were missing, to come and see, to know Jesus. Paul also was a Pharisee, and he was a well-educated man. Uh, I think he said he was the Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. And he was zealous about obeying the law. He was involved in persecuting the Christians because in their eyes they were not following the law. But God changed his life. We know that story of how all of a sudden a bright light shone on him. He fell down to the ground and um, there was this, this dramatic change in his life when God shone his light on him and revealed to him who he was. One of the words he said there in that conversion experience is, Who are you, Lord? Paul's life was changed. We shouldn't be waiting till something dramatic like that happens, as it likely won't. But we can say, Who are you, Lord? We can say that now. We can ask God to shine his light on us, to show us who he is, to know God. Knowing God is most important. I'd like to just close with a couple verses out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And this was the words of Paul. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is what we need. Zeal without knowledge will take us down the road the Pharisees went. We need the knowledge of God. Zeal is acceptable to God. Zeal, I'm sorry, zeal that is acceptable to God is zeal that aims at the glory of God and nothing else. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and all the, the history it teaches us, the examples of people's lives and how we can learn from them. Thank you that we can know you. That you came to this world, died on the cross, made it possible that we can come to you. You've also given us your spirit that guides us and directs us into all truth. Today we simply need to ask you Lord, to reveal yourself, we need, simply need to have the humble um, approach coming to you and saying, Lord, who are you? And you will show us who you are, and you will help us to live according to your word. Help us to be faithful to you, to have ears, hearts, and minds that are open to what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.